best things I learned while studying to become a rabbi, I learned from a Lutheran. I was halfway through rabbinical school, which meant I was still in the thick of the core curriculum requirements. Medieval history and philosophy, modern Jewish history, rabbinic texts with a focus on post-Talmudic halachic literature, which was, yes, as difficult as it sounded. I had a lot of flashcards. I had three wonderful professors in those topics, all brilliant, all women. And yet, I struggled constantly with the fact that every author of every text, every historical thinker we encountered, every commentator and interpreter and philosopher and mystic was a man. And it wasn't that the things we read and learned weren't beautiful. They were. Brilliant insights on how human beings ought to treat each other, striking images of divine relationship, masterful legal reasoning for the purpose of equity and justice. And yet I found myself grieving all the voices that were lost, the voices like mine, with their own sense of human action, divine promise, equity, and justice. The voices which would read texts like, to teach your daughter Torah, is to teach her licentiousness, and would say, mm, I don't think so. <laughs> I was trying to figure out my place in a tradition I would soon be charged to lead, one that I loved deeply, but one that had spent many thousands of years of development, sometimes ignoring or even actively debasing my existence. So there I was, indignant and frustrated and grieving and confused, Sukkot break of my third year of rabbinical school, at a retreat for my Tisch Fellowship in Synagogue Innovation, meeting Gail Ramshaw, Christian feminist author and scholar. Gail, as she invited us to call her, gave a riveting spiritual autobiography. She spoke with such compassion for her Christianity, such a centeredness of self in how she embraced the concept of unity in Trinity, how she moved her way through the dominant male images of God. She seemed, above all, to be in a place of deep and profound peace. I envied her, and I did not understand her. When it came time for questions, I shared my struggles and I said, there is so much loss here, so much we could have had and didn't, so many women and marginalized people who thought deeply as we do and whose ideas were never recorded. I'm angry about it all the time. And yet, you seem so at peace with it all. How come you are not angry? And Gail Ramshaw, Lutheran feminist scholar, smiled knowingly at me and said, that's what grace is for. That's what grace is for. I immediately, viscerally understood that those five little words would change me. What Gail was telling me was, yes, you have every right to grieve. You have every right to be angry. There is injustice here. And yet, you can, as I have done, 
find peace despite that injustice. Not by staying angry, though anger has its place, but by reclaiming your own power to love a tradition that does not always deserve you. That is what grace is for. The years I have spent reflecting on grace and anger, the interplay between the two, and the ways they can heal our pain, have transformed not just my relationship to Judaism, but my relationship to myself and to others. Now, you may be thinking, Rabbi, that's all well and good for Gail Ramshaw, Lutheran feminist scholar, but it makes sense for her. Grace is a Christian concept. Grace isn't Jewish. I understand your concern. We rarely seem to talk about grace, capital G, as Jews. Amazing grace. That's your first association. When I asked a colleague, a rabbinic colleague, if she had some resources to share on the topic, she told me she'd gone to her usual index of sources and the GR section skipped right to grasshoppers. Not a word on grace. But I am here to tell you that grace is an inherently Jewish concept. Grace is, in fact, everywhere in Jewish tradition. The Hebrew word or root for grace is chen. And once you know what to listen for, you hear it everywhere. The second Torah portion in Deuteronomy is called va'et chanan, I asked for grace. The great medieval commentator Rashi explains its opening word as follows, articulating an idea very similar to what Gail would teach me nearly a thousand years later. He said, all forms of the verb chen signify a gift given freely. Even tzadikim, total saints, who stand upon their good deeds, still ask God for this unearned gift. In both biblical and modern Hebrew, the way to say that you like someone is motzechen be'enai, they've found grace in my eyes. Or how about the old and beautiful blessing, the priestly benediction from the book of Numbers? May God bless you and keep you. May God's light shine upon you, vichuneka, and be gracious to you. And nowhere is grace more prominent than in our high holiday liturgy. It's there when we recite the 13 attributes of God, as we just did. Adonai, Adonai, El-Rachum, V'chanun, eternal, eternal, God who is merciful, V'chanun, and gracious. And it's there with every Avinu Malkenu in that final chanted verse. Avinu Malkenu, Choneinu Vaneinu, Ki Einbanu Masim. In these days of awe, we recognize that we are so incredibly human. Einbanu Maasim. We have no actions within us. There's nothing we could do, and therefore, paradoxically, nothing we have to do to earn all-encompassing compassion. So we ask before that open ark, 
grace us, divine sir, source, with unearned, unconditional, unstinting love. My teacher, Larry Hoffman, summed it up as follows. Grace is, quote, not some ho-hum variety of pleasant benevolence, but the wow-inducing experience of knowing God loves us, even if everyone else lets us down, and even if we don't deserve it. So what can the prevalence of grace in our tradition, especially in the imagery of these days of awe, teach us about how to approach this yearly process of repentance and forgiveness, growth and return? The key for me is in the story of Hannah, Chana, the Haftorah portion for Rosh Hashanah, which I just read. The heroine's name literally means grace. Hannah, as you heard, is the beloved but infertile second wife of Elkanah, desperate for a child. She's constantly goaded and mistreated by the fertile Panina, who goes out of her way to be cruel. Finally, heartbroken, weary, and frustrated, Hannah goes up to Shiloh to offer a prayer for a child, only to be met by Eli the priest, accusing her of drunkenness in a sacred space. In that prayer, Hannah vows, God, if you give me a child, I will dedicate him to you for all the days of his life. She returns home and the prayer is answered. Hannah conceives a boy who will be named Shmuel, Samuel, for she says, I asked the eternal for him. Now it would be easy to read the story as follows. Hannah, the woman named Grace, is the recipient of divine grace, the incredible loving gift of a son. And there is beauty in this. We need the promise of divine grace at this season when we come face to face with our own failings and missteps. It is comforting to know that there is a source of love out there in the universe continually giving us compassion despite any imperfections. But I see this narrative quite differently. This is not a story just about God's grace. It is a story about Hannah's. It is a story about Hannah embodying the truth of her name. And because it is a story about human grace, it has a great deal to teach us about how we might find that capacity for giving love though it is unearned. Hannah's path to grace, to giving away the greatest love in her life, her son, is not found through leaping to that ho-hum variety of pleasant benevolence. Hannah's path to grace, and I believe our path too, is through the one emotion emphasized again and again in this biblical story, anger. Hannah is angry. The Hebrew root for anger, ka'as, appears four times in the first 16 verses of this story, along with descriptions like marat nafesh, bitter to the core, and ketsar ruach, short of spirit. Hannah is ticked off. And she has every right to be, a cruel rival, a husband who doesn't seem to understand her, a bumbling priest, and a body which betrays her every desire. 
And what Hannah does is she feels her anger and she shares her anger. When Eli, the priest, accuses her of drunkenness, she rebukes him. I am a short-spirited woman. I'm not drunk. I'm angry. I am pouring out my heart, my spirit, my soul before the Eternal One. Our society so often treats anger as a destructive emotion, something to be curtailed. This time of year especially might trick us into believing that we must negate our pain and our anger and turn immediately to forgiveness, that the only acceptable emotions are full of goodness and kindness and compassion. But what Hannah's story shows us is that when we are in pain, in order to access any of those feelings, any of that compassion and forgiveness, let alone love, we have to let ourselves feel the pain, feel our rage at the world for inflicting it on us. We have to let ourselves speak the truth of what we are going through, even at a whisper even if no one but God will understand. I haven't been Hannah, but I have been in that valley with her, that realm of hurt and loss. I imagine many of you have too. The place where life feels too hard and we feel too tired and it all feels like what hurts us will always hurt us and all we want is just to rest for a little while. Not to have to fight so hard. Not to experience the pain we simply do not deserve. It feels like a fog in you and also over you. And you don't have even the beginning of an idea of how to lift it. And anyway, you are too tired. It is grief. It is burnout. It is depression, it is anxiety, it is pain, it is sorrow. For a long time, I too believed that anger was a bad emotion. But I have seen that when I am in the most pain, my anger is what fights for me to get back up again. Anger says, you have value and it is being thwarted. Anger says, you can yell and cry and scream and pour out your soul. Anger says, you are in pain and you do not deserve this. I began to see what a gift anger can be, a vehicle for voicing struggles, a lens by which we see the injustices in the world and feel compelled to act on them, and a reminder of our own infinite value Sometimes we face hardships that we simply have not earned. And in letting anger guide me through the processing of grief and pain, I began to see, as Hannah does, that though it can be a life-affirming and powerful emotion, I do not want to live there. 
When we allow ourselves to pour out what hurts us, to see the injustice in the things we do not deserve, we make room for goodness and kindness and compassion and yes, even forgiveness. We make room for love, improbable and fragile as it is, for ourselves and those around us. We make room for giving that love away, though it too has been unearned, the divine quality of grace. This is what Gail Ramshaw was trying to teach me on that autumn day these many years ago. Anger is there to lift us through our pain, but grace is there to lift us out of anger. Grace brings us to a place of peace. It allows us to reclaim power in a world that too often renders us powerless. Grace helps us make this choice. Rather than do to you what you have done to me, rather than offer pain into the world in return for pain, I will give what I wish I had been given. I will give love, not because you have earned it in any particular way, but because I have. As we enter into this new year of 5,780, as each of us contemplates the task of forgiving pains, large and small, I invite you to open yourselves to the message of Hannah. It is okay to feel the magnitude of the grief that people, things, or circumstances have caused you this year. It is okay to be angry. Your anger wants to protect you. Let yourself feel your sorrow and your frustration in all their depths. And when you have poured out your soul, when you are ready, and that might be this year, or next year, or 10 years from now, perhaps you might turn to grace, to offering love to the world because you choose to, because it will bring you peace. May it be a year of feeling deeply, speaking truly, and giving love away. <laughs>